Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my friend and co-host Adam. How's it going, man? It's good. We are four-fifths of the way through this tragedy yes. that is Chernobyl. The <laughs> and, uh, penultimate episode. Yes, as, as we like to call them. Always going to yeah. call out the penultimate episode, and it's been a great series. <laughs> At the same time, I'm kind of ready for this plane to land or the fire to be put out or whatever (laughs) analogy we're going to use for this because it's definitely taking its toll. I couldn't imagine, even though we spread these out in terms of how we watch them, I couldn't imagine spending a month with this series. It's just, it's a lot. And I think that speaks to the storytelling. I think it speaks to the art direction, the directing itself, the writing, all the pieces that go into a series like this where... You really are living with these characters for the period of time that the show is depicting. In this case, we're I think we're about six months out from the explosion by the time we get to the end of episode four. So it's a it's a long time, but even at the pace we're going, it feels very overwhelming. And I jokingly say, Hey, we need to pick up and watch something really happy, especially after this episode. And like you said, it's at this point in this mini series, we are now three months of events have transpired mm-hmm. in just this one. It's a pretty long, ep- I think it's an hour and 10 minutes. It's a longish episode, but yeah, it's in compared to the first episode, which is basically the first 24 hours. Essentially we talked about this going into the series. We weren't sure if it was going to be sort of day one, day two, day three, day four, or if it was going to be jumping around in time to before and after the events, or if it was going to jump forward and like skip over a lot of what happened, just kind of tell you through you know exposition what happened. It's kind of starting to do that, it feels like now. We're starting to kind of skip over big chunks of time and just focused on very specific events or characters and experiences that they're having. Before we get into the meat of the episode, I just wanted to make a few observations. I thought, technically speaking, the the sound design in Mm. this episode was especially poignant, beautiful, uh, special. (laughs) Yeah. It stood out to me. I think in particular, the rooftop scene that we can talk about more in detail in a little bit. Definitely. uh, The way in which the... I call them Geigers. They're not Geigers, but they're the the radiation detectors and how that's used in conjunction with... The dosimeters. The dosimeters. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. How that's used in conjunction with the breathing and with yes. the scooping up of the of the metal, all those different things that come together that create a level of tension. I got to tell you, there were times in that scene where my hands literally, like I was ringing, and I was like, "Go, go, 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 please, right. please." When the guy fell, I was like, "Oh my gosh, he just touched the the rocks," and and water got all like you know contaminated. Yeah. Water got all over his body. It's, yes. It's, yeah, it Horrible. was it was so just heartbreaking throughout the episode just the way in which the sound design is used is very effective. There are times when it feels it creates this level of isolation metaphorically mm-hmm. and physically. It really emphasizes that somberness of this episode because episode 3 sets up such a monumental shift in what the point of like, what's the next phase of this? As Legasov says, the battle's over, essentially, but the war has just begun, and here's what we have to do. The episode really does lean into, okay, here are the next set of problems we have to solve. And it's almost like the show sort of expands with each episode. We have the explosion, right. and then we have the people leaving Pripyat, and then we see how it's sort of expanded beyond Pripyat a little bit. And now the problems, which are stop the fire, get rid of the water, and then create that heat dissipator. Now it's like, okay, now we've got to get rid of all the stuff. And that was the other thing that I thought was incredibly beautifully shot was all those, like that montage of scenes where you saw machines plowing over crops, like Mm -hmm. they're cleaning up, but destroying at the same time. 
seeing shots overhead of helicopters dropping what I believe is more like sand, like they were doing for the fire. And just seeing the ways in which the city and I guess the radius around this place had to essentially be reshaped or decontaminated. Right. And we're seeing a beautifully shot destruction, I think is the way I would describe it. It's heartbreaking, but at the same time, from a filmmaking standpoint, it's absolutely incredible because we see the links that they had to go through to decontaminate, to contain all of this stuff. And, and we haven't even gotten into the, the human casualties yet or to the roof yet. Just the stuff that would almost be considered like tertiary, like this could be and probably is contaminated, so we have to get rid of it. These animals are probably contaminated, so we have to get rid of them. And then the rooftop scene, I think, is if there's a hill, if there's a peak to this episode, it's like the first peak, and then the second peak is the conversation near the end of the episode. It really did build up to a sense of like, this feels like the beginning of the end of the series, of the crisis, but also like a real sense, like a turn in the attitudes and the perspective of the people living there and the people in charge and what came to be known as one of the reasons that the Soviet Union fell. Not the only reason, but one of the significant reasons that it did fall was because of the uh, events at Chernobyl. Yeah. And like you said, you made a good point that it started the series with this like big event. From there, the show has kind of gradually the scale of problems has decreased. Like they got over and through and figured out and solved a number of issues. But by this point in the series, they're really just dealing with the day-to-day issues that such as rounding up and killing animals, digging up the soil and, and turning it over so it's buried, things like that. So like the big issues are are done, like the big concerns that of something more global or more catastrophic occurring they've gotten past that stage and now we're just kind of seeing almost like snapshots of just individual lives of somebody who's pregnant somebody who's trying to cope with murdering animals just sort of basic things which are the literal fallout of this travesty really and it's a slower episode as a result the pacing is much more very deliberate way that we're past that emergency phase of the series and now we're into this kind of just seeing kind of observing the steps that are being taken to deal with the aftermath and also still that side kind of investigative aspect of it of the mystery of why did this happen what caused it that's the other kind of part which i think is what keeps us as the viewers so hooked is that we too are like a, how are they going to deal with all this? And now we get to see some of what they actually have to do. And B, what caused this? You know, why did this happen when everyone keeps saying it's impossible? It just can't happen. There's no way this could happen. So we're finally, by the end of this episode, I think, at a point where we think we understand to a certain extent what transpired and what led up to it. Yeah. And something that just came to mind for me is the five stages of grief. I don't think this follows it to a T, but there's definitely denial. There's definitely anger. There's definitely depression. And I think we're getting into the place of reluctant acceptance in scenes in this episode. There's the moment where Vasily's wife, we see her four months later and she's in Kiev. I don't know if Kiev is a quote rich city. I don't know if it's in a developed city. It may be, it doesn't look great. And I remember thinking, here's a woman who is pregnant, who's lost her husband, and who we find out at the end of the episode loses her daughter as a result. And I asked myself this question, is life worth living if it's diminished? And so you have these two scenes to open up the episode where you have the old woman who is milking her cow, and she creates this this dialogue with the, the soldier. There's some fantastic reasoning that she gives. She's like, I've lived through all this stuff. What's the point of me leaving now? I mean, what's left for me? And the soldier is just being a soldier. He's like, you've got to go. And essentially, the one thing that is keeping her there, metaphorically, physically, emotionally, is that cow. And he takes that away from her too. And then she reluctantly leaves with him. And then you follow that up four months later with the silly's pregnant wife, who's in Kiev, 
and you see how defeated she is. I think she's grieving, obviously, but she's also moving on in a place that's not her home. Like she can't go back to Pripyat. I don't think she's been told she can't, but she's really starting over without an anchor, without her husband. And that really sat with me for the episode. I was kind of listening or watching how are people dealing with the fact that their lives are now going to be different with being exposed to radiation, living in a different place, living under different circumstances. I don't know that the question necessarily got answered, but I think it was a good question to ask because of the fact that we don't know. It made me think, you know, what if my life got usurped? What if my house blew up or or burned down and we had to move someplace else? Sure, insurance would cover a lot of it, but my son, like me, and like I think a lot of people, become we become attached to stuff. We become attached sentimental of things. You know, these folks, I don't know what they had before Chernobyl, but when you have to leave everything, if I were told tomorrow, hey, there is an explosion, you have to leave your house, and there was the inkling that I couldn't ever come back to it, man, I think about being displaced after Hurricane Katrina, just the mm-hmm. amount of grief and the amount of emotional and physical loss that those people felt and having to move someplace else and start their lives over. I kind of was reminded of that whenever I was watching the first part of this episode, and it really made me sad because I knew that life was never going to be the same for her, specifically right. for, for Vasily's wife. And then to find out that her daughter died, the ending scene was just so heartbreaking. And I don't even know what she's thinking. Is she thinking, it's my fault, I made the wrong choice? Or is she thinking what do I do next? Maybe it's all that. Maybe it's none of that. It's definitely a weighted moment knowing Mm -hmm. that um, she's not going to see her daughter again. Yeah. I think what it all comes down to is there is a human need and almost more animalistic need to survive that we need to find a way. And they kind of, in a way, paralleled that in this episode when they talk about the dogs. And I think it's uh, Pavel, the young man that's helping to shoot them he says what do they eat because obviously these are domesticated animals that were living in people's homes they were pets and now they're running wild and you know there's no food and he says oh well they eat all the chickens first and then then they eat each other that's really interesting because that's kind of what all living things do even humans human not they won't eat each other but i'm saying i mean they might like in the book and movie alive but in most cases though i think even if things are horrible, even if things are looking bleak, we find a way to keep moving on. There's something in most of us, you know, clearly there's some people that can't cope with certain situations and it's horrible, but most people find a way to marshal strength to carry on. And that's what I think most of the people are doing. And they're finding a way, they're finding something to keep them both physically alive as well as mentally moving in, the, in a new direction to start over, to start fresh, and to kind of put the past in the past. And it happens not just in events like this, but whenever there's a natural disaster, Not this was obviously a man-made disaster, but when there's natural disasters like tsunamis or hurricanes or tornadoes, same types of things happen. Sometimes we get a warning with hurricanes, for example, and just like that old woman who doesn't want to leave her home, there's lots of people who live in states that are prone to hurricanes they're told you need to pack up and drive inland or <laughs> drive north or go get away. And they don't want to leave because they feel like, you know what, this is my home. I'm going to stand by it. I'm going to protect it because they're so attached to the physical idea of home. And of course, that's when you hear all the, the police and fire departments saying things can be replaced, but you can't be. We can't help you if this gets really bad. And I think that's kind of the idea that they're trying to show here is that, especially for older people, if it's been their home their whole life, like that old woman was discussing all the things she's been through in her life, all the experiences, she just probably doesn't care. She probably feels like, I'm going to die here anyway. So whether it's tomorrow or 10 years from now, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm just not going to go. But I think the younger people, like the silly's wife, she's young. She needs to find something to keep moving on with. I was hoping that the baby would be her purpose that she would be a mother and that would carry her forward. But now she's lost that too. And it's, it's devastating, like you said. This is a rough episode overall. And uh, it's called 
and we find out why, the happiness of all mankind, but it almost could have been called dogs and vodka because that's a lot of what this episode focuses on, drinking vodka and killing dogs. (laughs) A lot of time is focused on both of those if you look at the the full runtime of the episode and the amount of time we witness these events, it's rather, it's interesting. Absolutely. And to the credit of you being able to watch the whole thing, I did not. I skipped over those two <laughs> scenes. I had the internet help me out with skipping over. But there are some moments that I do remember, specifically after that first scene, they're having a conversation before they go out hunting again. I don't remember the guy's name, but he's the head soldier. Then I call them the the Arminians with him. The older one, yeah. You mentioned the the title of the episode. This is where it comes from, this particular scene. He's trying to ease the pain of killing, indicating that it becomes easier. But I think it speaks to what we've sort of alluded to, which is this acceptance of a life that exists now and embracing it for what it is. And we can hate it. We can wish for something better. We can wish for the life that we had, but the life that we had is now gone. Right. And I think about scripture that says, you know, yesterday is gone It's a, and tomorrow hasn't gotten here yet. So, you know, living for today and not worrying about tomorrow. I think some of that idea lives in this episode where that guy is really trying to encourage the moment. He's like, here we are today. This is where we're at today. And in some sick, twisted way, he's right. Because yesterday is absolutely gone and they can't control what happened. They can't go back and say, okay, well, the plant's not going to explode today and the core is not going to do its thing. They've been given a task. There's a level of intelligence that I think exists with him in talking to this young man about the fact that I don't think it's about the dogs. I think it's about the fact that a person is having to murder. A person is having to deliberately kill for the greater good, for the happiness of all mankind, as the Arminian says, Because what they are doing, as hurtful as it is, is for the betterment of the people around them. And that concept is echoed throughout the entire episode, Mm -hmm. and especially with that scene on the roof. This was what made it difficult for me, is at the end of episode three, we had the big recruitment draft day, essentially, and some folks were on kitchen duty. I love how that guy lays out, like, these guys cook, these guys basically... Mm -hmm fix the wheels on the tires. I don't know what the heck these guys do, you know, F them, that kind of thing. (laughs) And then we find out that all those citizens of Pripyat are doing different things. We get the trench work, all that stuff that's happening at the camp. But then there are others that are asked to go. I don't remember how many, I think it's like 5,000 men that are asked to go to the roof. This is after the failure of the moon rovers, specifically the German one. They fail with the German moon rover on the, is it Katia? No, not Katia. Well, they they use the Russian or the Soviet moon rover first, which they was one they had in storage. It's not the one they sent to the moon. They make a joke like that one's on the moon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But this is another one. They had a backup and they can make two more. But then, yeah, they do go to Germany to get what I think they called not a moon rover, but a police robot it's some kind okay. of like policing tool that they devised i it made me think of like robocop you know like at, yeah at 209 <laughs> or something i was like what is this thing going to look like but yeah they, that's a great scene as well just how it like instantly stops working once it's placed on the roof because they didn't even communicate to the germans what type of radiation level it had to withstand because of the propaganda they say you know, the propaganda yeah. number that they gave them uh, was far, far lower than what the reality of the situation was. Right. And the Germans built it to that specification. That's what's really interesting. And something that came to mind for me, this line, it wasn't a line, but it was a, a phrase that came to mind. Saving face loses lives. That's another mm. big theme yes. in this episode. Because in that moment, if they had told the Germans what the actual number was, the Germans would have, pro- I don't know, maybe, well, I'm assuming they would, have built a vehicle that would withstand that. But instead, if they, they were could. saving fists. Yeah, if it was even right. possible. I don't know. I mean, it's because they even mentioned that the Americans, if they had this technology to withstand this level of radiation, they wouldn't share it with us. But they don't even know if the Americans have that ability. So right. it, there's a big question of whether or not it, it's even 
scientifically possible with the 1980s technology to create something that could withstand that level of radiation. Yeah. Because they say it would it literally like fries the circuits, you know, that in that proximity to unless it's like to, a light switch, something as simple as right, a light something switch. Something so simple. Right. And that actually echoes later on in that last scene where you have the um Belarus scientist, uh Kamuk Kamuk <laughs> The composite scientist. Yeah. Emily Watson plays her. Yeah. yeah. And she's talking with Legasov and Sherbina, and they're having that whole great dialogue about what's going to be said when Legasov has to testify. And of course, Sherbina, being the, the company man, being the party right. man, yeah. he's like, tell them enough, but don't tell them everything. And this is when she reveals that while they were responsible for a lot, the scientists, the engineers inside the plant, they may not be responsible for the explosion. And help me out here because I didn't quite mm-hmm. get the explanation, but I believe the AZ5 button press causes the power to go up instead of down because of the way it's engineered. And it's almost like it like triggered like a spark. That's kind of how I understood it, where instead of shutting it down, it actually kind of went, and then that spark actually caused the explosion is that correct so yeah i think what i took away was that they didn't cause the explosion or that the defect in the system wouldn't normally cause an explosion if the reactor and everything was running at normal levels but it would only cause an explosion and this is the defect that they found out like 10 years earlier if the reactor was being pushed to its absolute limits, which they happened to be doing during their test. So if they hadn't been pushing things to the limit and then pressed that button, nothing bad would have happened. So it was like the worst, you know, it's like two so unlikely situations that you would have to press that button and the reactor was being pushed to the limits that would cause an explosion of this nature to occur. So it isn't their fault, because they didn't cause that defect in the engineering of of this type of reactor, but they were pushing the core to its limit. They were doing things that probably, even though they were designed for safety, they were doing these to prevent things from occurring in the future. They still were the people in the room at the time doing what they did. So it's like they did stuff, yes, but they didn't technically cause the explosion by something that they did wrong. They did everything the way, the way that they were told to do it. That's, I think, the sort of dumbed-down version of what, yeah. of what happened. Yeah. Well, that's a great explanation, and it helps me understand it a little bit more. The philosophy behind that, though, is what I'm really intrigued by, and I'm pretty sure you were as well, which is, why were they not told? Why was this stuff redacted? I love right. the scene with her, and I believe it's... Maybe it's Dyatlov, who is still kind of being a denier. Like, I didn't know the core exploded. Well, how do I know? And she gives him that piece of paper. Uh, Right. Well, she shows him a picture first of like the whole (laughs) thing. Just there's your explosion. (laughs) Yeah. He just kind of pushes it it away. Yeah. 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 No Photoshop here, sir. But then she tells him a lot of it's been redacted, but there was a mistake. They did not redact the table of contents. And she starts right. reading into what you were talking about, which is this idea of a problem that exists in all of their reactors. And this all comes back to saving face. And it's still being defended to some degree from the mouth of Sherbina. He says, what you're asking of Legasov is to humiliate a nation which is obsessed with not being humiliated. And that right. just reemphasizes this idea of saving face and losing lives. Had they found the problem and acknowledged right. it and said, hey, we need to fix this, I don't know the politics behind that. I mean, honestly, I think that would be a heroic thing. You got yeah. all these reactors that have this flaw, but I think that brings up this idea that apparently like the perception of the Soviet Union has to be perfect every time with no mistakes. Right. Iceman, ice cold, no mistakes. Right. Val Kilmer in the skies, <laughs> Not making any mistakes. Well, the Soviet Union is not going to be my wingman, okay? Because you're not owning up to the challenges that you have. I mean, you're dealing with nuclear power, people. And at the same time, this is killing people, not only through the radiation, but through the preparation. And so there's this like grouping of everyone's to blame because 
what you're saying, what you're not saying, when you're saying it, all this comes to a head in that conversation. And I love what she says. She says, to hell with your deal and to hell with our lives. Someone has to start telling the truth. Amen, sister. We have to be able to get past this. And at some point, humiliation has to take a back seat to protecting your people. Right. Because that right. essentially is the core, again, no pun intended, of the Soviet ideology. But I think it kind of speaks in a tertiary form to the falsehood of socialism, this idea that, oh, yeah, we want to do what's good for everybody, when in actuality, you want to protect the power of the elite while pushing down the, you the know, and amplifying the weaknesses of, yeah. of the common people. And that's sort of on display here in some ways. I'm maybe reading into it, but I feel like that's sort of on display in this series, this idea of not only protecting your reputation, but vaulting those who are in higher power by saying they can do no wrong. And we're going to make sure that they are not perceived as doing any wrong. And that's where I think all this redaction and lack of information is living and why it led to all this stuff. And the irony being that, as we've talked about, there's this sort of divide of scientists versus military or politicians. And here we have the politicians basically covering up when there's a scientific problem instead of saying, because they want their scientists to be perceived as perfect, as not having any flaws in their engineering and in their ability to build the best nuclear reactors in the world. And so it's like you want them to look like they're the best, but you don't actually care or want to support them and making sure that they actually are the best. It's just strange. I don't think this concept, though, is specific to the Soviet Union. I mean, if you think about it, there are so many big multinational corporations, car companies, pharmaceutical companies that do this all the time. They will cut corners, make mistakes, and people will die as a result of it, whether it's yeah. you know a faulty part of a car that causes brakes to not work and people die, but it only happened 10 times. So, oh, well, 10 people, that's acceptable collateral damage. We can pay those people off and no one will ever know. So that's what big companies do all the time. They're constantly sort of doing the math and thinking, well, instead of a full recall or instead of fixing all these problems, why don't we just figure out how many people are acceptable to die from something? And if it's not too much, then we'll just keep moving forward as, as originally planned. And so I think that's how many corporations and countries operate, unfortunately. Same thing with war, right? How, what's an acceptable number of losses if we mess up? Like, what's that threshold? What's that limit? Anyway, I just think that this accident was a byproduct of what was happening in the Soviet Union, but it's more of a human problem in that we don't ever want to admit when we're wrong. And if we don't get caught, if we think the problem is so unlikely, so impossible to really ever be a problem, we would rather cut that corner and not talk about it than spend the time, money, and energy and admitting you're wrong to try to correct it. And I think that's a product of, as consumers, human beings, for whatever it is, we expect the best from mm -hmm. whatever we're consuming. Or we jokingly play it down so that we can enjoy what we would perceive as a lesser quality thing. We do this with movies all the time. The idea of rankings. When we go to a movie, some movies are these days very forgettable. Does that mean they're bad movies? Absolutely not. But what makes them memorable? When we walk into a movie theater, we expect to be entertained. When we walk out feeling like we were let down, we start blaming the movie, even mm -hmm. though there might be other factors like I could have had a just a bad fight with my wife or I could be really sleepy. And so the movie just right. isn't interesting me. Or someone in the theater could be, you know, making noise or playing a video game on their phone, which I've had happen, where someone's oh, literally just talking to having a full blown conversation like in the row in front of you. So is that really the movie's fault? No. But <laughs> it makes the experience one that detracts yeah. from the overall experience. Yeah, and so we have a we have an expectation when it comes to the things that are put in front of us, whether they're entertainment, whether they're products of some kind. I buy something, I expect it to work. I expect it to work for a certain period of time. But we also put expectations on things that we don't think will have a long last. So when I go to a fast food burger restaurant to order 
a burger and fries, my expectation is diminished because of the perception I have of that place. So if I go to a McDonald's to get a burger and fries, it's going to be different than if I go to a restaurant that specializes in, quote, gourmet burgers. Mm -hmm. I expect it to taste better, but that's subjective. When in actuality, maybe to my taste buds, (laughs) McDonald's hamburgers taste just as good as the gourmet. But at the end of the day, my satisfaction is what I'm I'm looking at. Right. And so I make that kind of weird analogy to say that we put on ourselves as human beings and we put on other people this expectation based on what we see, based off of maybe one dimension. And you're right. If I'm looking at Facebook as a company or meta as it is now, I expect it to do what it says it's going to do. So when it messes up, now I've lost trust in it. If I look at a news outlet, like CNN or Fox, or even some of the smaller ones, there's a level of trust that I think has become more subjective because in the world of instant news, there's so much contradiction. Some of it's true, some of it's lies. And I can't watch Fox News or CNN and completely trust what they're saying because I know that by their own admission, you can watch CNN broadcast an event and watch Fox News broadcast that same event and they're telling the same story, but they're slanting it in a way that's meeting a certain agenda. So you ask yourself the question, how do you know who to believe? Well, they're both probably telling the truth. The event happened, these are the facts, but the emphasis on certain things from those two news outlets as an example are going to vary widely because they have an agenda. And I think that in this series, in particular this episode, what's coming to light is this idea that we are seeing the agenda of the Soviet Union. It's not a Soviet Union problem. It's a human problem. All of us, because we are flawed, have the capacity to lie and to slant our own image, whatever it is, whether it's a news organization or an individual, to create a certain narrative. Instagram is a fantastic example of this. How many times, if you're scrolling through Instagram, do you see the worst of someone? There have been times when I've wanted to, just for spite, queue up my Instagram and then just take pictures of me randomly on a computer, like just looking at my (laughs) keyboard, out of focus. Because that's my life. My life is very much mundane. It's not about taking pictures of food or catching me at my best. But Instagram, as a product is trying to capture moments, but the best moments, curated moments. But it doesn't apologize for that, even though most human beings know that for a fact. Psychologically, depending on who we follow, we want to be influenced in a specific way. We're actually putting ourselves in that position to say, okay, I'm going to surround myself with beautiful people. I'm going to surround myself with artists. I'm going to surround myself with chefs because that's who I'm going to follow. And so I'm going to continue to kind of build my own understanding of this world. We curate that. That lives in this series. That lived in the Soviet Union. It just wasn't digitized. And so I think the magic of this series is that it calls attention to the fact that two things. One, what was happening in the Soviet Union was not an isolated incident, that it's continued to happen. And that today it's vaulted to almost a, an infinitesimal kind of amount because of the world of instant news, because of social media. And I think for a lot of people, for me specifically, I can't speak for everybody, I have to be so careful about what I consume and how often I consume it because eventually my attitude gets jaded. Then I start thinking, oh yeah, maybe it is like that. And then I go down rabbit holes that are so unhealthy. And I think that's what I see in a character like Sherbina, who has been part of this for so long that he cares so much about the perspective of and the reputation of his country. And there's nothing wrong with that on paper, but when you're lying to get it, when you're sacrificing lives to get it, there is a problem. And that's why I think the voice of the scientist coming in is such a great counter to that, saying to hell with your deal and to hell with our lives. She's speaking very much altruistically and says, we've got to do this. And there's, I think they said there were 14 other plants in the Soviet Union using the same type of reactor, which obviously have the same potential flaw. And so they even at one point talk about negotiating with the KGB so that they can fix the problem, but while saving face. 
And they're just like, what are you talking about? You can't negotiate with the, with the KGB. Even though he's a party man, as you said, it's that weird idea of how far will you go to save face? If, if you're just trying to save face with, say, the Americans in this case, are you doing that at the expense of your own population's health and safety? Is that really what's best for the people of your country? It's just a strange contradiction that saving face takes precedence over the lives of your citizens and the safety of your citizens. It's, it's yeah, it's a bizarre set of priorities <laughs> that yeah. they have to live by. One of the most tragic and beautiful scenes is, of course, what we alluded to, the rooftop scene. So the way that's set up is so great. I think it's Legasov that says, I think I may have a solution after the German vehicle fails. He recommends using bio robots. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, wow. And I didn't, yeah, I guess I was just stupid in the moment. I didn't realize what he was talking about. Like what? Like Terminator? Yeah, I thought that, like that there was some like sci-fi solution that I didn't know about. Like what's this, what are bio robots? But then it was like, oh, of course we are bio robots. And the whole yeah. con concept being kind of the Andy Dufresne technique of the Shawshank Redemption, where he takes a little handful of of the wall right out in his pockets every day and yeah. drops it. And that's really what they had to do. They had to say, okay, we can put three men up there at 90 seconds at a time to throw like maybe two or three of these pieces of graphite off the roof. And then they're done. Like, that's it. I think at the end of the episode, they mentioned there was almost 4,000, I think, men who, who did this. I don't know if they did it more than once or if, like, was it one 90 second shot and then they were done forever wasn't like they went back two weeks later for round two. That was their level of exposure they were permitted, and that was it. Again, I think one thing the episode does really well is what the series is doing well, which is explaining the, the significance of right. the radiation. I think it's Legasov who explains each part of the roof. It's kind of like low, medium, high. You have yeah. a thousand Romkin, which is like exposure every hour or something like that. And then it, it doubles on the second part of the roof. And then the third part of the roof is like 10 to 15 times stronger. Like if you're out there for two or three minutes, you're exposed and you're, you're pretty much dead within a week. Yeah. And that's what we've gotten to. So the slow burn of the, of the episode and leading to we got success with the moon rover. Great. We did that. We cleared that. And then you get the, oh my gosh, with the, uh, with the German machine. Yep. I love Sherbina's reaction. He gets on the phone and he just breaks the phone. And that's when he tells us via yep. his conversation with Legasov that because of our propaganda, as you mentioned before, yeah. they gave us exactly what we asked for. They right. gave us a rover that does They it. gave them the propaganda number, I think, which I think exactly. was a great way of putting it. You know, like that's the number they're telling the world that because the Soviet Union cannot have a nuclear disaster of any great significance. So therefore, the worst is 2,000. That's it. And when in reality, it's like 12,000, I think, yeah. on that one roof that you were talking about. That roof scene, I have to just say that I went back and watched it again because the first time I was in it, I was experiencing it. I was with those people on that roof. And so I had to kind of go back and watch it again to kind of figure out why. Why, why did this work so well? And as you mentioned earlier, sound design is a huge component to it. Also, it's real time. We're seeing this in real time, 90 seconds. The camera doesn't cut once. It's a continuous shot. It's like you have a documentary filmmaker following these guys up on the roof and in my head, that guy has his own protective gear <laughs> on himself as well, because he's trying to show what these guys are doing up there and how dangerous it is. And as you said, we hear the, the, the sound of their breathing. We hear the, the decimeter kind of crackling and then getting so loud as they start to get to the edge of, of the roof and throw the stones and the rocks over the edge. It's just incredibly effective as a result of the technique that they used to film it, the real-time one continuous shot, handheld, so it felt like somebody was there with them. It's almost like you were a part of this cleanup crew, and I felt yeah. for these guys. And that particular individual following him, I thought the exact same thing. Like, you're, you're saying this, I'm like, yeah, I totally did that too. Yeah. And that's what made me so anxious, because as the documentarian, one of the things just in particular that I remember is the guy saying, don't look over the roof. What's funny is the camera at one point when the guy throws it, he sort of goes forward, but then comes right back, like as right. if 
he if, oh yeah i can't i can't do that yeah as if the camera operator is like i just want to see what what does it look like down there and yeah. then realizes no no i got to get back yeah. yeah but the other thing adam is that as he's going back with the person the idea of us being omniscient being the people right. watching but being in that camera perspective when the guy falls down twice you want to reach out and help him up but you can't because right. one, that cameraman does not exist. He is not really there. <laughs> right. Right. And two, even if he was, the impact of that, of touching that guy and trying to help him up would be worse. And so this whole thing for the happiness of all mankind, that guy's holding himself back. So it's like this duplicitous thing that's happening where that camera guy does not exist. He's not there. No. And yet we feel like he is, and we are that cameraman, but we're also following the rules of that scene, which I think you make a fantastic point. The fact that it's in real time, the fact that the camera doesn't cut, puts you in the position where it doesn't feel cinematic. It feels documentary-esque, right. as if we didn't already believe that this stuff was happening. Now <laughs> right. we feel it. And I think that visceral feeling is why this episode, I think that scene really quantifies why this particular episode feels so personal because of the way the camera works in that scene. And so watching that guy go through the 90 seconds, I, I was thinking the same things he was where like, where do I go? Like, like, what do I pick up? Like, where, yes. where do I start? And he picks up, he picks up something and then he, he almost like he drops it. He's like, that's not enough. And so he grabs another piece and he tries to carry it. And the whole time, but he like wasted half the time just like, Looking around, dilly dallying, yeah, like not. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, it's so. He was it's frozen. Like I kept thinking, what are you doing, man? Just start chucking anything, kicking stuff over the edge, whatever you can do. Just get as yeah. much debris off that roof as you can. I don't know what the actual like physical impact of being exposed to radiation in that moment. I mean, obviously, what he's hearing is the thing going off like crazy yeah. as he gets closer to the edge of the roof. But I have to believe that there's a sense of panic because. He doesn't know what's out there. I mean, they're literally going in blind. They're right. told not to go near the door until they're told to. They're told to come back when they hear the banging. And so I can see how he, I don't think he's dilly dallying. I think he's no, I know. overwhelmed. I, yeah, I know. I know it's you, just yeah. <laughs> frustrating as you watch him because you're like, why are you just looking around? Just start shoveling anything you can off the roof. Like, and why was he going the opposite side to, again, I, I totally agree with you that it's all because of the shock that he's in. He's, it's such a foreign situation to him or anyone really that it's like, where do you start? What am I supposed to do here? And it takes him a half a minute to kind of start realizing, oh, okay, I, I just got to start shoveling stuff and getting it off the, you know, getting it over the edge. And then there's that great moment where he tries to shovel a really big piece of, uh, of that and another guy comes in and helps him. And they, they kind of throw it over together with their two shovels kind of connected. And yeah, it's just what a task, what a daunting task to, to have to just do over weeks and months. And, and I just want to add one thing, their protective gear. And this is months after the incident. I keep thinking, 1986, okay, they don't have anything better than these kind of makeshift solutions. And they, <laughs> they haven't started mass producing like great high quality nuclear radiation suits. I mean, I know they existed in the United States from Back to the Future. They wore the yellow suits when they put the plutonium in the back of the DeLorean. So they were around. They There were companies making them. Maybe they weren't accessible in the, in the Soviet Union at the time, but it just feels like you had this horrible nuclear disaster. You've had a few months now why is your manufacturing industry not making the highest quality suits that you can pull over your head, you know, and completely encase your body to protect you from as much possible radiation as possible? You know, it just, yeah, it baffles me. And, you know, I'm sure that as you're watching that, you're, I don't know what the capacity for mass production would be in a place like the Soviet Union. They make a lot of vodka. <laughs> they do. They do. And cigarettes. <laughs> they make and they need to make more iodine pills, what they need to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I if I had to venture, I guess I would say, at least on the surface or tertiarily, it would be because if if the world found out they were mass producing these things, right, it might create a little bit Red more flag. panic. So I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's yeah. the case because, I mean, if you're that good at keeping secrets, you might as well just keep manufacturing a secret too. <laughs> True. Yeah. 
anything else that stood out to you in this episode that you wanted to discuss before we wrap up? Yeah, I just want to, you know, I know you, it was hard for you to watch the, as you mentioned, the, the dog shooting scenes and there were Mm -hmm. two of them really. I did watch them. I just have to say that you mentioned earlier how good the sound design was in this episode. And that's a big part of why these scenes work so well. You don't actually see any bullets go into any dogs. It's all like your your mind connects the dots. You see a dog, it's running, you hear a gunshot, you hear a whimper, maybe a thud. It's like, it's not really seen. There are a couple scenes where you see like an injured or wounded dog kind of on the ground, maybe some blood or something, but you don't see them actually getting shot, but it doesn't diminish the effectiveness of what's happening, which I think is great. I mean, you, we don't have to see the brutality of like a dog's head getting shot, but it's kind of like in film, the, the concept of persistence of vision, you know, where there's 24 frames, they're all still images from film being projected on a screen, but your brain perceives that as motion. So and that's what's really happening here. Through sound design and through the shots that we're seeing, we perceive these animals being slaughtered when really nothing is happening <laughs> on screen. But yeah, I can see why it would be difficult as a dog lover for you to see that to, to see or I guess hear this. But it wasn't as bad as I was expecting it to be is all is what I'm getting yeah. at. <laughs> well and I think you're right. The implication of something is right. far worse than actually seeing it to some degree. You know, let your imagination do the worst thing. So I think right. for me, that's why the Blair Witch Project is such a great movie because it lets your imagination use Fill the, in other the, blanks. Sen- yeah. the other senses that you can right. see. I mean, there's no smell or touch necessarily, but there's definitely sight or lack thereof and sound that make something really visceral. Yeah. And yeah. so in a movie like this, that rooftop scene, I think does the same thing where we hear breathing, we hear the <laughs> sigrometer or whatever. I keep forgetting what it's called. Dosimeter. Yeah. Dosimeter sigrometer. Yeah. What is that? I, I remember dosimeter, <laughs> but I can never remember any of the characters, Russian names, which you are great at. So uh, I wrote them down. That's why. And I wrote them down phonetically. Like Formin, <laughs> F-O-R-M-I-N is like Fermin, F-E-R-M-I-N-E. <laughs> Only one I, can, I remember from this episode is Pavel, who's the young boy who shoots the dogs. And I only know that or remember that because Pavel is the first name of Chekhov from Star Trek. So Pavel yes. Chekhov. So I was like, there, <laughs> I'm not going to forget that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that all that stuff does the same thing. It allows your imagination to go, wow, they can't right. get away from this. And yet they're still doing it. And that to me, I think is reflective beyond the greater good of the country and is more reflective of the greater good of the people. And this is what's echoed with Kamuk when she says that line that someone has to start telling the truth to hell with our lives. She really echoes what I think a lot of the people who do this, those guys in the mine, those miners that do the job, they're doing it for the good of the people, not the good of the country. And that's what I think is sort of starting to separate here, which is the people, not the, high point the high people the the bourgeois right not the not the party or not the politicians and military high ranking military officials it's the essentially what they would call the the proletariat you know the worker class they're the ones that are getting sick they're the ones that are dying they're the ones that are sacrificing and working so hard to try to basically cover up what has happened and make it make the land and water and the surrounding towns livable again at some mm-hmm. point. It, it's that, for the people. It's for them. It's for their families. It's for their children. Yes. That's why they're doing it. And it's the, the, as you said, the powers that be who are sitting in their, their Moscow boardrooms are, are the ones that are doing nothing really except trying to control the narrative. And it may lead to the same conclusion, but this series is allowing us to really kind of get inside and choose a side. <laughs> and yeah. I think the altruistic human in us is looking at the people, protecting the people, right. as opposed to the right. government protecting the government. And I guess that's where the episode kind of leaves us wondering, will we get the truth, as she says? Like, it's time for the truth. Like, is that just a bit of a cliffhanger ending where we'll <laughs> find out that, in fact, no, no, it got covered up and this never came out until 25 years later or something yeah. after the events? So yeah, it's 
how long did it take, in other words, for the, the full truth to come out? Like, did it come out the year after? I don't know, historically. So I'm kind of curious to see how and what happens in this final episode. Yeah. And because we've advanced several months after the initial explosion in this fourth episode, the time jump is what I'm also curious about. Do we go a year later? Do we go four years later? (laughs) And I asked that question, I think in the first episode, which is how far are we going to go in the story? So if anything, that's one question I want answered, which is how far are we willing to go? (laughs) Right. And I feel like we'll get at least up to the two year jump that we got on the very uh, opening of the first episode. I would assume we would get back to that point at some point, but I'm also curious, like if we'll see, oh, and here's 35 years later, you know, this is what it's like today. And like, are we going to see some real footage of Pripyat? I mean, these are just questions that I personally am curious to, to find out about. So in the episode is called, and I'm going to butcher this. It's called uh, Viknaya Pamyat. You want to give it a go? That's how I, that's how I pronounced it. Pamyat? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the best way to Close describe enough. it. Yeah. I look at it and I want to spell it. I want to say it backwards, like Tamap Ayan. <laughs> like it's some kind of Morse code or spelling code or something. <laughs> that's that's like some kind of alien language, then you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's when we get sci-fi. Maybe it's like uh, Klingon or something. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll do it for this edition right. of AOS. Thank you all for listening. As always, I'm Patch. He's Adam, and we are out of here.